Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? So Keith and I had this great idea. We were going to do one episode on just war and nonviolence. We're naive sometimes. I think we knew deep down it was never going to fit into one episode, but we've now expanded this into three. And I'm saying that because if you have not already listened, our first episode explored a biblical theology of violence. A lot of stuff that Keith and I, though we hold different positions on this issue, agree on. In the last episode, I did a steel man of the Christian nonviolence position, and Keith did a steel man of the just war position. Yeah, we and- just were to kind of clarify questions, right? Those are the only kind of questions that we could ask. But it got a little spicier than I think <laughs> we anticipated. I, I'm kind of embarrassed. At one point, you were saying things, and I just started laughing. And, and I went home, I was like, people are just going to hear me condescendingly laughing at you in the you, background. You were well. laughing, and I was like, I think the majority of the church holds this position, so why are you laughing at me? <laughs> well, we have a good relationship. <laughs> and on that note, on today's episode, we're going to do the great roast, where Keith is going to challenge. <laughs> this is not a roast. <laughs> or I might get roasted, but I have no intention of roasting you no. even if it were possible. No, this is not going to be a roast. I agree. I'm guessing the questions you're going to ask me are pointed clarifying questions, and I'm going to do the same to you. I'm actually really excited because as the guy who holds the Christian nonviolence position, anytime this topic comes up, I'm always the one in the hot seat. I never get to be the one who asks the other people the challenging questions, which I would love to do because I realize most people don't have great answers to some of the questions that I'm asking. Now, I hope you do. That's the whole thing is that there's going to be a lot of questions that both sides have to wrestle with that don't have great answers. If there were great answers to all the questions, this wouldn't be an issue that had divided the church for centuries. Everybody would agree if there were clear, obvious, biblical, truthful answers to these questions. There's not. There's a lot of gray area. That's right. And neither one of us would say that either of our positions is airtight. And in fact, one of the things you're going to find is that neither one of us holds the extreme of our positions, which is going to make the questions a little more challenging. I had some that I realized in the midst of our conversation, I couldn't really ask you because you held a more moderate view than I expected. Well, and I just want to remind everybody why this is a big deal is that Ukraine is being attacked by Russia. The United States could end up in a war. People have talked about a no-fly zone or should we send equipment there? Is NATO going to get involved maybe because Poland gets invaded? And so this is a topic that's on everybody's mind. And if you're a Christian around the world, this is a topic that you have to deal with quite a bit. For us here in the United States, protected by the oceans, protected by a very strong military, we don't always have to be on the defensive side of these questions. It's easy for us to you know, pontificate and have theoretical positions. But for a lot of Christians around the world, these are issues they think about every day. That's exactly right. And that really was the genesis of this conversation. Despite me holding a Christian nonviolence view for about six years now, 
I really wanted to reflect on my own position because of what was happening in Ukraine. I mean, I was disturbed by it. And I thought, is the position I hold that does it really deal well with the realistic on the ground experiences of lived people? And, you know, I might not convince you. I still feel strongly about my view. If anything, I've probably given more space for gray area in my reflection. But Keith, you get to go first. You get to rush me. So let's hop in. You get to ask your questions to a real life Christian pacifist. (laughs) Well, if you've listened to the previous podcast, some of these questions won't surprise you because these are issues that have been brought up already. But now we're going to get clearer answers than maybe Patrick provided. So let's start with this, Patrick. In a zombie apocalypse, (laughs) what are our moral responsibilities? I did not expect this (laughs) question. Just kidding. Stop, stop. I just thought we'd start with something stupid. Uh, How about this one? You've made it clear before that you minimize your American citizenship in relationship to your kingdom citizenship. You don't say the Pledge of Allegiance. You now, we know, wouldn't join the military. But I'm somewhat confused because there is a sense in which you do think Christians should be involved in political office and hold governing positions within the country. So my question is, do you think a Christian could be president of the United States? And if you were (laughs) president of the United States or if a Christian were president of the United States, then how would they operate as commander in chief? How would they operate as the person who sends the budget to Congress and who oversees the Defense Department, and the military, would you begin to dismantle the military if you were president of the United States, if there were a responsible Christian pacifist president of the United States? How would they handle being attacked by another country? How would they handle some of the issues that every president has to deal with? That's a great question. Let me just rewind to one thing. You said I would not join the military. Well, you know, I am. Well, no, I just want to say that's not true. First of all, I could still, if the draft came back for one more year until I turned 35, <laughs> I could be drafted and I would allow myself to be drafted. Now, I would have to request a role as a non combatant. So that could be a chaplain, that could be a medical officer, that could be, you know, a transport You're officer. Stalling. I'm not stalling. I'm just yeah. saying I don't think it's fair. I'm going to try to be fair to you. So let's go to the presidential question. What would a president do? First of all, I want to ask you a question. Oh, no, hang on a second. No, no, no. A, a Christian could, president yeah, a who Christian holds president. your position. Hold my position, but I want to ask you a question. Would you ever want to be the president of the United States? Well, I wouldn't want to run for president of the United States. I wouldn't kind of like to be the president of the United States. <laughs> wouldn't it be kind of fun? I, mean, uh, I don't know. I like challenges. You like challenges. I like challenges. I would never I mean, want to be the I'm president. sure it's far, far, far <laughs> harder from everything I've read than it looks. But okay, let me ask you a different question. Do you think Christians should be in the film industry? So Hollywood, that kind of thing. Yes, I do. I think Christians should be salt and light wherever they uh, yeah. can be. So I agree. So let's talk about a Christian becoming a famous actor. So Andrew Garfield, he played played one of the Spider-Man and Spider-Man movies. I'll trust you on that. I have no he's, idea. He's a Christian. Okay. Um, do you think Andrew Garfield should participate in nude sex scenes where there's a little bump and grind happening? Somehow, I feel like we've changed roles No, no, here. no, because I, we haven't changed <laughs> this roles. This is your answer? This is my, my answer, I, because I'm going to make sure that we're all on the same page. So just what would you say? Should Andrew Garfield do that? Should he be in a movie where he has to get naked with another woman who's, let's say they're both married to different people. They have to touch, they have to bump, they have to grind. He has to be all over her. What do you think? Should he do it? I think that would take a fuller discussion on art and what's the role of a Christian in art. How is art different than real life? So I think there would be some serious moral considerations that he would have to go through in order to get himself to that position. And I can imagine different Christians, depending on their vision of art and whatever else, coming to different conclusions on that. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. 
So my guess is you're waffling a little bit, because deep down, I know you probably agree with me. That's probably 98% a really bad idea for him to do this. And if he was in your church, you'd probably say, yeah, don't do it. But let me ask you a different question, okay? A videographer, someone who's filming the scene, should they film the scene? Well, again, I think you've gone down this position of art, and I think Francis Schaefer has a little book on it that you yeah, might yeah. want to pick up. Okay, different up. question. I've heard you say with Game of Thrones that people probably shouldn't watch the TV show because, in fact, I think you have a podcast where you said this, and I could go pull the clip, but I won't do that to you, where you suggest that people shouldn't watch it because there are sex scenes inside of it that are pornographic. I think Christians cavalierly put themselves in front of material that harms their soul. And I'm not going to make a blanket statement that every person can't do X, Y, or Z, but I think Christians are careless about the things they take in, they consume on media, and I don't think they realize all the damage it does. So I think at least Christians should put the brakes on that kind of thing and think about it hard. I love trying to put you into this little corner right now because your views are just sounded a little bit different than what I've heard in the past. That's fine. <laughs> That's well, fine. well That's fine. I asked so the me, questions, well, yeah, it, and now all of a sudden you're asking me questions, which shows that you don't have a very good answer, no, shows, which shows is a, fine. It shows I, mean, a, it shows I have okay. a, a great answer, which is, like you, I would say from top to bottom, these are areas of discernment. Now, I would actually probably disagree with you. I don't think a Christian should participate in a graphic sex scene. I think that breaks our sexual ethic because in my view, sex is not just penetration. Sex is kind of a from top to bottom experience of sexual things, right? And so I think that actor is breaking God's law as regards sex. But it's okay if you don't want to go there. And by the way, I think the cinematographer shouldn't participate. Now, I think a cinematographer could be creative. They could say, hey, I work on this TV show, but for this scene, I need you to have someone else come in. And hopefully the director and everybody else around them would honor his conscience or her conscience and let him do that. But he might have to draw some lines in the scene and say, I can't do this part. Now, that might mean he can't get the job. So now let's go to a president. Someone wants to run to president who has my convictions. They are committed to Christian nonviolence. Well, first of all, I don't think that person would ever get elected because that would be a question that would be asked. And I just can't imagine the American populace voting for him. But let's say America votes for him. That means that they have chosen, they have elected democratically a president whom they know is not going to choose to enact military action. Now, he might use our military for peaceful means. There's lots of things that a military can do that doesn't always require shooting a gun and killing people. He might use our military as a defensive threat. To now, be the Red Cross. You're joining the military into the well, Red Cross. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I, don't, fine. I don't know what he would or wouldn't do, and I don't know what the consequences would be. What I'm saying here is if he wanted to remain faithful to his principles, he would have to seriously consider as the commander-in-chief of the military how he does it. Why are now, you presuming this is a male? She or he—it's <laughs> a great way to knock a guy off his thought. Now, here's the deal. I'm good at that. If someone in my position, as I've already said in a previous episode, there are layers to this. There might be some areas where someone in a Christian nonviolent position would say, yes, I think this kind of violence is okay. That kind of violence is not okay. And so I would have to leave that gray area up to that president to decide and determine. My second thought is this. Romans 13, I think, teaches that the government does have the sword. Now, I think that has primarily to do with policing. I don't think it has a lot to do with military. My point in saying this is governments are going to go to war, and we should expect in many, many cases that the people who are leading these governments, this is probably a true statement, by the way, across the world right now, that the people who are leading our governments are not Christians. That is not a normal, normative circumstance. So if you're trying to push me into saying you can't be a president, I'd say, no, I don't think you're going to be electable as a president. And if you are elected as a president, yes, you're going to be in some tough situations, but you were chosen democratically. Everybody knew what you're going to do. So go ahead. If you want to work on dismantling the military, that might be your thing. I don't know that's what you would need to do or have to do, though. I don't think you could call the military into combatant action with my position. I could not do that, okay? Right. That's what I asked is what somebody holding your position would say. And so what you are acknowledging is that— I'm acknowledging that in all jobs, 
there are lines and there are situations which you, as a Christian, will have to, at times, choose not to cross. So you, And that certain jobs, like being an actor or a cinematographer or a president, might have more lines that you have to wander around and figure out than other jobs, right? If you're working at a McDonald's, your choice might just be, am I going to steal this person's credit card information? Like, that's not a hard choice to make. Now, a president who's overseeing a military, a defensive force, that's a really, really hard thing to navigate. I'm acknowledging that. Okay, so you don't think that a person who holds your position is going to be elected and isn't going to be able to- I don't think they're electable. Be a commander-in-chief of the United States Army. I said if they got elected. If they got elected, they're not able to send the nation into war, right? And so that probably means, as you acknowledge, that we aren't ever going to have a Christian president who holds your position. Probably, yes. And my problem with this is because you're saying this is what Christians should believe. I mean, you're not saying in an arrogant way as if every Christian who doesn't believe what you believe is wrong, but you are saying this is what Christians should believe. And if every Christian were to believe this, what we would then have is no Christians who are participating in the upper levels of our government, no Christians in the Department of Defense who are in a position where they're having to lead the nation in the war. I get the whole non-combatant thing. I get that you can be I think a Christian could be in that position and actively work in all circumstances to prevent the military from going to war. Right, which is therefore unrealistic because the military is designed to go to war in certain situations. I'm I'm, I'm agreeing with you. So we're not going to have any... Christians in Department of Defense. We're not going to have any Christians probably in the Senate who believe what you believe, but you're going to have to- That's a more electable position, and they could hold to a non-violent position, and they could argue against every single military action that the United States wants to take. And therefore, they are not electable. Well, well, that's what you said. And I would say I, I say they have a hard time being elected. Yes. Now, we're not going to have, circumstances. We're not gonna have the, Christian generals. In the post-Iraqi war, if you were a senator who said, hey, I want to get us out of Iraq, I want to get us out of Iraq. you elected a president. That could get you elected a president. So my, my point is that. actually in some circumstances, they are. Now, I just want to interrupt you for one second. Just to say this, this is it. Let's look through the history of American presidents. And let's just ask the question. What percentage of them? Now, again, we're not God. We don't know who's Christian and not Christian. Yeah, but, I'm not going to go down that but, road. But if we had to guess... How many of our presidents were sincerely Christians and how many weren't? I would give highest numbers to 50-50. Highest numbers to 50-50 being the case, right? And so don't want the 50% that are Christian not to be present? Well, certainly not. Do I think that they are following through on all of their Christian convictions? Well, obviously not. But here's the deal. I get to live in a world, I suppose, where people don't hold my conviction, and so Christians are still there. And so at the end of the day, if you're asking me what I think I should do, there's one thing. Then reality is a different thing. No, I'm asking you about what happened in history. I'm asking you about whether well, you think this is Arguably, some of the presidents for... who have done some of the greatest things for ordering our society haven't been Christians. But you've changed the topic, and it's an interesting topic. I'd love to talk about that topic on a different podcast. But the question is whether Christians, if they the all question. hold your position— They couldn't, they couldn't be electable. Would hold these would hold these would hold these high offices. And now I want to take you to people in the storyline of the Bible who were believers. There was no one who who was a president and ruler. There was uh, not uh, name one. You are getting desperate. I'm not getting so, desperate. I already just, said you could be so elected as a senator. It. Shush it. You could be elected as a senator. Shush it. You could be put into a cabinet. There are lots of positions you could hold. I could oversee America's agricultural okay, wonderful, department. Wonderful, wonderful. So, Joseph. You know what he oversaw? Agriculture. He, he oversaw more than that because if you go back and read it, you find that he was the second highest in Egypt. Now, Daniel, he lived in Babylon, another pagan nation mm-hmm. in which he had 
Lots of responsibilities. Now, we don't know for sure that he sent people off into battle. We have no way of knowing that. But we do know that he had to wrestle with a lot of gray areas and he had to make decisions that were not in, but but not always. He had to make decisions that wouldn't fit your pure idealistic view of how Christians should live. And we have Mordecai and Esther. Uh, We have Nehemiah. So I I think that what you're- I strongly (laughs) contend that what you just said was false. I do not think- you just said, first of all, Daniel is actually upheld by Ezekiel as one of the few purely righteous people that has ever lived. And so I do think that somehow he lived very, very sinlessly. true to his convictions. No, I didn't say sinlessly, okay. but he is upright. And you you are painting him and Joseph as these figures who maybe probably oversaw military action. You no, have no I, more idea than I do. I, I said we don't know that. Nothing what I they said did is, broke my convictions. What I said is, is I love Joseph and it, Daniel. It, uh, I could be I, Joseph for <laughs> Daniel, if, right? If they want to oversee agriculture, commerce, there's all different kinds of no, things you can what, be a part what of. What I said is believers that you admire and all of us should admire were involved in upper levels of government which and I had to make decisions. Be. Right, I agree. Which I think they should be. Agreed. Wonderful. And I think that they had to make lots of decisions that were probably messy and morally ambiguous, and they couldn't have been in those positions had they always gone and said, hey, I can't film this scene. Hey, I can't make this decision. Hey, And so I think your idealistic view doesn't fit with the reality of Daniel being second or yeah, third like in with, command and Joseph like what Daniel being said, hey, I can't pray to Nebuchadnezzar. Hey, I, I can't to, uh, to Darius. Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to confront you on your pride and your idolatry. There were places where he drew hey, lines and places where he weren't. He took a of... Babylonian name, which was in honor of a Babylonian yes. god. He enrolled in the Babylonian We got to change the question Academy. because I think at the end of the day, you and I fully agree on this. I've already said, I think Christians can be in these positions. I already said they're going to have to ask themselves conscientious questions about where they draw their lines and stand. We ask on the issue of violence, I said that's a line in the sand that I would draw. There's lots of other lines that I think are blurrier. So the Christian pacifist position as held by you and espoused by you would not be in the upper levels of government if that required them to be involved in military action, whether it was just or unjust, whether it was going to free the people from the concentration camps in World War II or whatever the military action is, you wouldn't do it. We'd I, save a lot of money, I guess. I mean, I don't know how long we'd exist as a country. Yeah, that's we fine. We would save a lot of money. Now, here's the deal. I, Why I will, have bombs if you're not going to use them, right? <laughs> I, I will repeat. I think that nations are going to go with war with nations. And I think that You Christi- just don't think Christians should be involved in it, being no. salt and light, making godly decisions, pursuing just war, is, using morally appropriate force. You don't think my, Christians should be in this that? This is my last thought before you ask your next question. This is my closing thing. Is it a thought or is it another question No, it's a me? thought. Oh, <laughs> it's wow. It's a thought. It's a thought. Christians... I think should be in every possible layer of government and every possible layer of vocation, unless the actual vocation itself is entirely antithetical to the kingdom. For example, I don't think you should be a prostitute. You probably shouldn't be, you know, a gangbanging drug dealer. Like there are lines we all draw. And in your job, you will have to decide what your lines are. You will have to act in line with your conscience. Some jobs will have more of those lines. Some jobs won't. Beyond that, nations will go to war with nations. Christians were not taught in the New Testament or the Old Testament to expect to be the ones who were in charge of these military forces. You will be hard-pressed to find a single Jewish person who was the leader of a foreign military inside of the Bible because it doesn't exist. So, all that to say, my view does not in any way contradict Joseph or Daniel. Next question. You're on the hot seat, so you get the last word. I know. That's what I'm going to do. I'll let you get the last word, too. We spent way longer on that than I thought we would.
Next question. What's the difference between killing and murder? Can you help us understand the difference? That's pretty easy. So let's say I am out mowing my lawn and in some freak accident, the blade fires out of my mower into my next door neighbor's head and kills him. <laughs> okay. Now, That's if now this gruesome. sounds yeah, this is it, gruesome. Dude's just walking down the street and he gets hit by a flying. <laughs> there it goes. <laughs> mower now, blade. I, I'm actually taking this from. Did a, this almost happen? Is this almost why it popped no, into I'm, your I'm head actually, so quickly. I'm, no, it popped into my head because there's part of the law code in Exodus which talks about a man who's chopping wood, and it says that as he's chopping the wood, he throws back the axe, and the head of the axe flies off. <laughs> and hits someone and kills them. And it's trying to make sense of what do you do in those kinds of situations? Or another example is, is your ox scores someone else. In those kinds of instances, the Bible seems to view that as manslaughter. It's a form of killing. It was accidental, right? So what does it come down to? It comes down to intentionality. I did not mean to kill the guy who my mower accidentally impaled or beheaded or whatever else. It comes down to intention, right? Murder is when I intentionally kill someone. When I am actively, volitionally trying to kill someone. I think that I disagree with that in the sense that in the Bible, capital punishment, and I think you even acknowledge this, is approved in certain circumstances, not in every circumstance by any stretch. So the person killing them is intentionally killing them, but it's not murder. We don't arrest the people who were part of the execution of a capital crime because there's a difference between murder and even trying to kill someone. The distinction of murder is not that it was done on purpose. Yeah, I think to press in further, because you just asked me to define the two. Now, if we want to get more nuance, I think there are all kinds of situations where we can ask the question just in terms of like a just legal system. For example, if someone kills someone else in self-defense, do I think we should have laws which put that person in jail and make them liable to the death penalty? Personally, I actually don't think so. Do I think a Christian should respond that way? No, I don't think a Christian should respond that way. But I think in a secular society, which is not ordered according to God's law, his kingdom, his ways, there is still space for that kind of thing. And so in that instance, I like our legal system, does a good job of differentiating manslaughter, of differentiating all different kinds of you know premeditated murder. That seems like a good legal system to me that I feel very comfortable with. I'm sure you get the point that I'm trying to, yeah. to make is that a police officer could intentionally kill someone who's committing a violent crime. A military soldier could intentionally kill someone, and it's not morally wrong. It's not murder. You know, you probably disagree, but... Well, I... I, I you don't think it's murder, but you still say it's wrong. Yeah, I actually like this question because I don't think I have a good answer to it. So what I will say is, and what makes my view, I think, so hard to articulate is there's a difference between what God calls people in his kingdom, how he calls us to act in some instances, and how he calls people in the secular world to act. And I think that we see this in God's own law when he's accommodating himself to people. We already used the divorce example, but that's a great example. God allows people to get divorces in the Old Testament, even when they shouldn't be getting divorces. This is an accommodation. So is what they're doing morally? wrong? Maybe it is. What I can say for certain is that people who are part of Jesus' kingdom, for us, it most certainly would be wrong. We should not be acting in that way. And I know this sounds wiggly, and so I'm very happy to say, hey, you've got a good point here. That was the last word. Yeah, so that's great. Let's next go to the question. question. You and I put out on Twitter that we were going to be having this conversation and asking people if they had good questions for either side. Yep. And of course, most people had questions for your side, <laughs> which you thought was entirely predictable. One really good question came in from a guy named Dan Darling, who's at Southwestern Seminary and also writes for USA Today and World Magazine. Maybe you've seen some of his stuff there. And I'm not quoting him exactly, but essentially what he was asking is if pacifism is a luxury belief. So he was getting to the point that someone can hold your position 
and stay out of war, stay out of combat, stay out of policing, stay out of all the places where force is used to ensure safety and the well-being of others. But you benefit from that. So in other words, you benefit from all the, I guess you would say, non-Christian soldiers out there or disobedient Christians doing the policing, doing the warring, fighting all the battles for your freedom, keeping your kids safe, keeping your streets safe. So it's this weird deal where you get the benefit without any of the sacrifice. And imagine that all Christians hold your position. I guess that's where all Christians would be then, getting the benefits of other people's sacrifices. So how do you think about that? Are you okay with that? I, <laughs> I was mean- going to say, what's the question? Uh, <laughs> so the question seems to me, do I benefit from being under the umbrella of protection, which has been secured by people who don't subscribe to my position? Yeah, that's a good way of saying it. So thanks for helping me ask my own question. But Stephen Bateman followed up on Dan Darling's tweet with the meme of Jack Nicholson from A Few Good Men saying, (laughs) you want me on that wall, you need me on that wall. And so that's kind of your position. You need these people out there on that wall protecting you, but you're not going to go out on the wall. Yeah. So I actually really like this question. I think it's a really fair question. And it's one that I ask myself frequently. It's part of why when everything happened in Ukraine, I said, hey, we need to do this episode because I want to reevaluate this. Because my social location and my historical location are such that I have a very, very small fear of violence in my life. Ergo, I can hold my views, my positions, with very little cost to myself. I don't have to defend it. I don't have to worry about it. And so it very well, for me, may be a luxury belief. I might change my opinion if all of a sudden I was living in the inner city of a violent place like Chicago, right? Maybe my position would change. So I don't think it would. I've tried to think hard about this, but something I've had to wrestle with. Now, the actual question that you're asking beyond this is also a good one. I would frame it two different ways. In principle, nonviolence does not require any protection. Nonviolence is just a principle. So I can live nonviolence out in a place where the Visigoths and Goths are conquering. I can live nonviolence out in Columbia, Missouri, where I don't feel much threat of violence. I can live nonviolence out in Sierra Leone, where there's children soldiers coming after me. I can live nonviolence anywhere, right? So because it's a principle, okay? Now, you're asking the question, hey, but at the end of the day, like, don't you benefit from this? And so this is where I think the nuance of my view is going to cause people maybe frustration or irritation at me. Remember, Romans 13 teaches me that the government is going to have the power of the sword. And I think that's primarily focused on policing, which is why I do think Christians in policing, to me, is the biggest gray area. I think there's a strong case to be made that maybe Christians could be in police forces and use violence. I think they can be in police forces no matter what, question is violence. In other words, part of how God is ordering society in this era, because we're living in the time between the ages, we're living in the already but not yet. Part of the not yet is that nations are waging war against nations, and God in his goodness and provision is using that warfare between nations to keep those nations relatively peaceful. Now, my question is not whether that's going to happen. And I would go back to the Old Testament prophets who said the exact same thing. God said, look, Assyria is a rod in my hand, and I will use them to bring my justice to the nations. And then he turns around in the exact same chapter, Isaiah 10, and he starts critiquing Assyria. And he says, I'm going to judge you, by the way, for the violence that you've done in my hand. I mean, it's very paradoxical. And so I take that view. I take the paradoxical view of saying, yes, at this time, in this age, God's going to use nations to keep peaceful borders. And yes, of course, I'm going to benefit from that. That's God's wonderful provision for me and for all people. My last thought, though, is the guy who says, you want me on the wall? You want me on the wall, too. And here's what I mean. Not that I'm going to be the person pointing a weapon. But there is a rich and long history of people like me, people who are committed to nonviolence, creating more just and ordered societies. 
I could go through a long list of examples. And without people like me, I would argue that the cycle of violence and warfare, which has taken away so many lives, would be, in many cases, far worse than it is today. And so, yes, you can say that I want you on the wall. Fine. That's great. I think that's part of God's provision. But you want me there, too. You want the Christian nonviolent people there, too. They have changed the world for the better. Not so much on the physical wall defending the nation with a gun, but on the wall of working for peace and justice, prayer, all those kind of things. Yes, we probably won't have time to do it, but what I've discovered is a lot of people who hold this position simply, there's an entire field of study dedicated to this, peace studies, and it is a really interesting, fascinating area that talks about how conflicts work, how to end armed military conflicts with nonviolence, and I could tell countless stories. I could talk about the 48,000 Jews, the largest number of Jews who were saved from the Holocaust were done so nonviolently. We could talk about Gandhi, movements that have made more ordered and just societies precisely by not taking up guns. The examples are endless. Is that a good answer? You start by answering the question and then you go off on a soliloquy that is good. It just doesn't have related anything to do with the answer, but I understand why you do it. You get away from the hard part and well, talk about things the, that you care about I and that are really good part. answers. I said, I said, I answered the question, yes, I do benefit from living under the umbrella, but I followed it up by saying, and that's God's good provision in this already but not yet age that there will be secular governments that go to war and protect their people. And it's part of how God does it. But remember, God will judge those nations. Just to that's clarify. Isaiah 10. It's, right, right. It's I, Isaiah I agree. 13. It's 100% yes. that that's in the Bible and taught in the Bible. And so we can't participate in the part that they're being judged for. I just want to be clear. I'm not trying to because make a counterpoint. I'm just trying to bring out clarity here is that you don't think Christians who hold your view should be in combatant positions in the military or maybe the police. That's still fuzzy. We're going to get to some clarification here in that in a second, but you benefit from it. And so if all Christians believe what you did, Christians wouldn't be in these combat positions, Correct. but they would benefit from all the other people making the sacrifices. And okay, that's whoa, not a Bible whoa, argument. Up. By the way, that that framing of sacrifices, I do believe that there is a lot of courage and a lot of bravery that goes into warfare. But you and I, by the way, have talked about the language of sacrifice <laughs> in military and how it can be used to give moral seriousness to actions which may or may not be sacrifices. Look, if Germany won the war, if the Nazis won the war, They would be talking about the brave sacrifices of the Nazi warriors who defended their cause, right? Victors write the history. Now, here's the deal. Do I think in some instances the word sacrifice applies? Yes, probably it does. Do I think in some instances it doesn't? Well, I I don't know. I think in some instances it definitely doesn't. But I'm not going to let you say that these people are sacrificing for you. Maybe they are in God's economy of history doing what the nations do, which is war against each other. And those who pick up the sword die by the sword. That's Jesus, by the way, not Patrick. That's the last word on that question. (laughs) Let's go to the next one. So you and I said in our last episode that we agree that Christians should not defend themselves. In other words, we should accept violence against ourselves and absorb that, that that's what the kingdom ethics of the Sermon on the Mount were teaching. But I don't think the Sermon on the Mount teaches that we must do that on behalf of others. In other words, I don't think the Sermon on the Mount addresses the question of can we rescue others from injustice and even use force to rescue others. So let's put ourselves in a couple different situations. And my guess is that you'll want to distinguish between them, but I think it will be better just to ask them as one. The first and the most obvious that your side always gets, so we just need to address it. is The home intruder. Well, I'm going to go to the Hitler one. So we know there's injustice. We know that millions of Jews are being killed. And what do we do that's realistic? I mean, you know, you've got to persuade people. I know you're going to say pray. I know you're going to say, 
that we should march in the streets? Because you brought up Gandhi. So we're going to march in the streets of Germany. I don't know. I want to hear what you have to say about that. Can we use force, even physical violent force, to rescue people from gas chambers? And the second little modification of that is, let's say that you are licensed to carry a gun. So the government sanctions you having a gun and there is a school shooting that breaks out. Now, this isn't too big of a hypothetical because unfortunately we have school shootings more frequently than any of us would want. And so someone is killing students. You have the opportunity to intervene, but it's going to require you to shoot your weapon at this person. I don't know if you're trying to kill them necessarily, but you're trying to stop them and you're willing to kill them if that stops them from killing more kids and teachers and parents and all the people who are standing around. So both of these have in common <laughs> that they are defending, using force to defend a third party, not yourself. So, so, so I, And I both actually... are sanctioned by God through the government or through laws. Neither one of them is the vigilante, rogue individual out kind of trying to do justice on their own. Those are great questions, and they're not the home intruder questions, so that's fun. Thank you for not making me say that, you know, I won't protect my wife or something like that, which I would. I just would not use violent means to do it. But let's talk about both these situations. Hitler. This one's the easier one for me. I take the paradoxical prophetic view that nations wage war against nations. I know that's going to bother people. Like, wait, what are you even saying there? This is Isaiah. I'm quoting from the Bible, and it really matters, right? The reason why there's Hitler's is because nations war against nations. The reason why there's a Nazi Germany is because we have a secular culture of violence. The reason why these kinds of people go to war with each other and these things happen is precisely because this is how, in this age, the nations rage with one another. So do Christians have to participate? I would say, no, you should not participate in violent action against Hitler, partially because I know God and his providence, because this is not a Christian world, something you have underlined to me countless times. We do not live in the kingdom of God. It is not here. There will be nations that fight. Christians may not participate in the violent aspects of that. And there are lots of parts of the war that I think you could still participate in and matter tremendously. You can't do wars with only combatants, right? Now, let me give an example of the Hitler thing. Bonhoeffer is the classic, right? Because he was someone who was historically in my position and he ends up changing his mind. And it's clear that he was tormented over this. I mean, he was absolutely tormented over whether or not it was the right thing to join an assassination plot to kill Hitler. And he never, it seems, got to a clear point of saying, I think this was moral. It just seems like he got to a point of saying, I don't have any other choices. And even if this is going to be a sin, I guess I'm just going to do the sin because I don't feel like I have any other choices. And I take that really seriously because he was someone who was deeply committed to his faith. What I will say is this, though, that plot against Hitler, it had an effect on Hitler's psychology. It caused him to bunker down, it caused him to hide away, and it caused him to hide in violence. And this is one of the challenging things in the midst of violence and violence. Oftentimes, when you bring a gun or a weapon or anything into a situation, rather than de-escalating, you end up escalating. Now, I realize a lot of Christians don't have the moral imagination in circumstances to think, how can I use nonviolence? How can I see this person who's my enemy not as my enemy? How can I come up with a creative way to bring different kinds of people to the table? And this comes from the peacemaking stuff I'm talking about. There's lots of principles. And these things have worked to stop child soldiers. They've worked in all kinds of armed military conflicts in Colombia. I mean, actually, the worst military conflicts in Colombia were ended mostly by nonviolent people who were willing to bring people to a table. So all this to say, could nonviolence have ended World War II? I might sound like the biggest dummy in the world to say yes, but I think living by my principles, I have to say neither one of us has a crystal ball. We don't know. What we do know is that violence escalated violence and that nonviolence was used to great good to protect the Jews in the time. So that's the Hitler question. Well, okay, so let me just push back a little bit. 
before we move on to the next part of it. So here you have Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I admit that it's a little vague about how he wrestled with all this. It's not super clear where he came out, just like I don't think it's super clear how Hitler responded to it. And would Hitler have done the same thing had the assassination plot not been foiled? We don't know. We don't know. There's speculation, but what you laid out is at least reasonable. That may very well be how it went down. But here you have a guy who's a pacifist until he is in the actual position of having to see all these people murdered. And then he says, okay, this cannot be right. This cannot be what God wants. And he's wrestling with it and there's ambiguity there. But when confronted with injustice, he thought he needed to bring about justice, even if that meant using force and even if that meant killing Hitler. So I guess I just think that if you were actually in that position, you might change your mind, that you might have more moral imagination to read the Bible differently (laughs) when you're confronted with it instead of sitting in the middle of a country in one of the most safest areas in the world, and not only in the world today, but in the world throughout history. That's what I mean by a luxury belief. Yeah, Keith, I, I think that's fair, and I worry I hold a luxury belief because the proof is not in the pudding, it's in the eating. And I don't know. No one knows until they're in this situation how they're going to react. I've already granted that, and I already said that's a great question to ask. And you can find Dietrich Bonhoeffer examples, and I take it very seriously, but I can also find countless examples of people who responded to gross and terrible violence maybe not on the scale of the Holocaust, but sometimes on similar scales, gross and terrible violence and remain nonviolent. They stayed true to their principles. So yeah, that's fine. Tell me I have a luxury belief. I don't know what to say. I'm admitting, yeah, I might, but I have to live by my principles, right? Let's go to part B, which is the active school shooter. You're licensed by the state to carry a gun. Do you use violent force in order to stop this person from killing more kids? Well, first of all, I want to say I'm a very interesting... uh, advocate of nonviolence if I'm walking around with my concealed carry. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I just tried to make it harder because here's why I said it that way is because if I would have said it was a police officer, I would have wiggled out. Then you would have gone to your, well, police are different. And I still don't understand how they're different. It doesn't quite make sense to me, but I know that's what you're going to do. If I think Romans 13 applies to policing and not military action, I do think that there's a way to read. I don't read it this way. Policing by Roman soldiers. Just yes. Right. Policing by Roman soldiers, not by a whole different department. Paul was perfectly capable of saying, there are some things that I think a person could do or not do, right? So you might be a tax collector, but there's things you can do as a tax collector and not do as a tax collector. You might be a soldier. There's things you can do as a soldier that you can't do as a soldier. And I think he makes it clear in the passage before what he can't do. Let's go to the individual who's licensed by the state to carry a gun and he is a weird pacifist, but (laughs) what should he do? Should you be there? What would you advise him to do? I'm just going to say, this is why I don't like the gun in this situation, in this theoretical Because you can't situation. tackle him. That's what I'm trying well, to keep you from saying, that, that's, oh, that's, I'll go and I'll tackle him. So With my definition of violence, I do not think that I could shoot to destroy. That leads me to a second question then. If I'm going to pull this gun out, am I a good enough shot to somehow disable this guy? Most people aren't, right? I know we have I this vision that police officers can shoot a gun out of a hand. They can't, not in that situation. So no, this person is not going to be able to now, do that. if this person is already actively shooting, so they're already in the violence phase, right? Yes. So so in some ways, I'm past the point of, can I de-escalate this, right? So, so they're already They've trying to kill killed two kids and they're after more. Yeah, okay, so what would I do in that situation? I would try to put myself in a physical position where there is no one between me and this guy. 
Okay, so you're saying I'm 100 yards. I don't know where in the school there's 100 yards worth of space other than on football. So apparently we're on the know. football. Just trying field, to make okay? it hard. <laughs> let's say let's say we're in a classroom or a hallway, right? I would try to get myself in that situation. And once I was able to get myself in that situation, I think the rational thing to do would be pull out that gun and start firing it above him. But violence now, breeds violence. So when you pull out the gun, that makes him more so, violent. No, I agree. Remember, you're the one who put the gun on me, so I do have it. But the second thing is I said, we've already reached the point of escalation. He's already shooting, right? So my whole point of pulling a gun out is they might not shoot if you hadn't have pulled the gun up. This guy's fair. already shooting. Okay? That's fair. So we're past that point. What would I do? I would try to get, and then I would start shooting. Now I tried to shoot from a place where I was hard to kill, hard to hit, right? I would do that. Why? Because by me doing that, I would draw his attention. I would draw his fire. And would I probably die? Yes. But in the process of me probably dying, which by the way, I mean, if this is me, there's no way I'm hitting him even if I'm 10 feet away, right? <laughs> right. I've never been good with a handgun. <laughs> okay. Shotgun, now you got a chance with a shotgun, well, yeah. but not that, okay? But it's concealed carry, so thanks for that little uh, <laughs> nugget. It's not going to be a shotgun. That's what I would do. And I would hope that I could draw him away from the group. Now, I don't know how far I could go or what I could accomplish, but if I could draw his attention for even 30 seconds, how many lives would I end up saving? If I end up shooting at him and miss, or let's say even worse, I don't wait until there's people between me and I miss shooting him and end up shooting someone else. There's a lot of consequences that come from that action. Now, I know that's not going to be a deeply satisfying answer for some people, but I would argue for me personally, with my personal shooting abilities, there's a good chance I'd actually save more lives taking that approach, even though I lost my own, than the approach of me turning around and trying to fire him. One last question for me, and we're going to go to one that you probably knew was coming and you're, I'm sure, prepared for it. We're going to go to the Bible, so it's a little bit more predictable, perhaps. We're going to go to something that we've talked about in the last couple episodes, and that is the whole idea of the soldiers, the centurions that encounter Jesus or John the Baptist or Peter in Acts 10 and all that. There's no examples of them being told they have to stop using force, stop doing what military people do. And while you might be able to say one or two of them, they were involved in that kind of thing because there were people serving in the military in the Roman Empire who never experienced war. I think there's enough centurions, enough military officials and leaders that we would be hard pressed to say that none of them ever experienced war. And so Jesus, John the Baptist, Peter, none of them say, now as a Christian, you need to leave this military service. But it's not as if Jesus or the apostles aren't willing to say that in other circumstances. So, for example, Jesus tells sex workers who become believers that they have to leave their sex work. The magicians in Acts 19 come out and publicly burn their books. Jesus tells the rich young ruler he has to leave everything to follow him. Now, last point I'll make on this is Zacchaeus, because Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and Jesus tells him he needs to do his tax collecting differently, but he doesn't call him out of tax collecting. So I guess my question is, how do you wrestle with the fact that there's all these military people in the Bible who are not called out of their military service? At least I'll get to answer one question I was kind of prepared for. I'm sure you're prepared for Thanks for being nice. What a good guy. (laughs) (laughs) You should have given me the questions you expected. No, this is more fun. This is more fun. You asked some really hard questions, and uh, I really appreciate it because it's sharpening my own view. and You asked some questions I felt like I even said, hey, I don't have a great answer for that. The murder and killing thing was great. Let's answer this question, though. The first question here that I think we have to start with is, do I have a plausible explanation for why, in particular, in Luke's gospel and the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, a plausible reason for why he, in particular, seems to highlight these Roman military figures. 
And you can already guess what I'm going to say. I do think there is. Every author agrees that Luke's gospel was primarily written for Gentiles, and it focuses on people who would have been excluded from the assembly, the community by the average Jew. So this would include Gentiles in particular. It focuses on people in the margins, like women and people in poverty. And of course, it's going to focus on Gentile military figures who would have been looked down upon by any ordinary Jew. And so I do think Luke has a reason for doing this. It's his way of saying, hey, you might think because of your identity, you can't be a part of God's kingdom. You can't be a part of what he's doing, but that's wrong. You can be, even as a Roman military official. Now that gets to your question. <laughs> How could they? How could they be? And if Jesus is willing to say to other people, leave your job, the prostitute's the best example, or Zacchaeus, do your job differently. And I, I want to come back to that. That's great. So let me start with John the Baptist. John the Baptist has these guys come along, they're Roman soldiers, and they say, hey, what do we do to inherit the kingdom? And he tells them to basically stop extorting people. Don't use their job to take money from people wrongly. That seems to be the focus of what John the Baptist is telling them. Now, here's what I find really interesting about that. This is the most common response to me whenever I tell them I'm committed to Christian nonviolence is they'll pull up this passage. Even before Romans 13, which I find interesting, this will be the most common. They say, see, John didn't tell them to leave the military. Now, I find this funny for two reasons. First of all, it's an argument from silence. Somehow we have managed to turn up the volume on what John didn't say louder than what Jesus explicitly said in other places. That's something you just have to wrestle with, okay? That's fair. I, I don't understand it. I don't know why John's non-words count more than Jesus's real words, but okay, whatever. Let's keep moving on. Second thing, if you know anything about Roman soldiers who worked in that arena and that area, you know two things. First thing is this. Very rarely, the kinds of soldiers that John the Baptist was talking to would they have been involved in violent action? They weren't in campaigns. Just like our soldiers today who have different kinds of skills are going to be in different kinds of places, they were not situated in a military context, which meant that they were probably not enacting violence. Okay, hang on a second. How do you know that that's true of the people John were talking to? Or I know you don't because know, of where they're but located. why is it likely? Because it's on the Jordan River. We know that the soldiers who were stationed in that arena were doing the policing thing. It wasn't just policing. It was policing. It was civil order. It was firefighting. It was all kinds of jobs that would have been included. Now, I'm not saying that they never did violence, okay? Or that they hadn't come from the front or were maybe going back to the front. From what I've future. read now, I'm not an expert, is that most Roman soldiers, once they were situated in a place, they didn't tend to take someone from the Judean front where there was no warfare and then go throw them to fight the barbarians because guess what? They weren't prepared for it. And the other way around. You don't want a bunch of people who are used to murdering barbarians to come <laughs> down to Jerusalem and have that same... I mean, we understand yeah, this, right? Sense. Your psychology is different. But let me highlight the main point. Do you know what was true of all soldiers in all places that they all had to do on a very, very consistent basis? No. Idol worship. This was a part of the Roman military. It was a far more common part of the Roman military than violence even. You were consistently sacrificing to the martial gods, to the emperor, and this was seen by them as a key part of your victory. I mean, remember, why is Constantine converted? Because he says he saw Jesus appear and win the battle. Well, that fits into a Roman worldview framework because they understood. I mean, read the Iliad, read the Odyssey. They understood that warfare was a battle between gods. And so if you've got a guy on your team who won't sacrifice to the God that's going to keep you and all your buds safe, that's a big, 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 big deal. If you've got a guy who's not willing to sacrifice to the God who's keeping public order intact, that's a big deal because that God might get angry and you guys might die. Now, here's why I'm saying this. You know what John the Baptist didn't say to them? He didn't tell them to stop worshiping idols. He did not say to stop worshiping idols. In fact, I don't think we have anywhere in the Bible where John says anything about idols. John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Now, <laughs> why does that matter? So apparently the less common thing, which is violence, he says nothing about. But that's the thing that he should have said something about. But the thing that's very common, idolatry, he also says nothing about. But 
this does not mean to that same person that now we can commit idolatry. Does that make sense? It does, but um, I... Um, so did John say we can commit idolatry convinced. by not saying that we can commit idolatry? But hang on a second. So these soldiers are standing around and they're part of a group uh-huh. in which they start asking John the Baptist, the group does, how does the kingdom affect me specifically? Yes. If I can, I just want to walk us through Luke 3 because I'm not sure your answer is convincing in light of how this story plays out. So John the Baptist is out announcing the kingdom of God and the crowds come out and he kind of questions them. Why are you coming out here to hear me? And he tells them to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And so then the crowd asks, what should we do then? And John starts telling them how they should live in light of the kingdom, what repentance looks like. And he says, well, if you have two shirts, share with the one who has none. And the tax collectors come and say, they want to be baptized. What should we do? Then he says, don't collect any more than you are required to. And then some soldiers come and ask him, what should we do? So they're asking the question in light of their soldiering. And his response is, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay, which I will acknowledge sounds a lot like the policing stuff that you just said. Uh, but <laughs> it, it doesn't, exactly but it like doesn't it. yeah, it does. I agree. But it doesn't get to the point that when they came to said is asked him, how should we do our soldiering differently? Hold on. Are you about to tell me that you think idolatry wasn't a part of their job? I'm saying that uh, this is not the United States. This is not a place where church and state were separated. Let's not do dishonest work here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know that this was part of their soldiery. Idolatry well, was part of it. I, yeah. In fact, in our last episode, you said the reason why most soldiers yes. left was because they had to commit idolatry. I said that the reason that there weren't a lot of military people in the early church is because of the idolatry. I agree. But I am suggesting that that could be a little different than saying, how do I do my actual soldiering differently? And he could have then said, you can't use force. You can't go around and kill people. You can't be violent toward people. And I also, before you jump in, because I know I'm sure you have a great answer for that, but I also want to say that there were plenty of other teaching that told them they shouldn't commit idolatry. I mean, idolatry had been criticized, critiqued all the way back in the Old Testament. It had been critiqued in Jesus. So I think the idolatry thing was clear. Of course you shouldn't be doing idolatry, but now we're talking about your specific soldiering and what does that look like? And so he could have then told them, stop doing it. Stop using force in a violent way. Okay, I have too many thoughts to go here. First of all, I don't want to prey upon people's knowledge or lack thereof of the Roman world. Our concept of a separation between church and state is a incredibly contemporary concept for them. And you're nodding because you know- I agree, you're right. right? Yeah, you're right. The idolatry was part of their job. So let's not frame it like it was kind of their personal worship. Like on Sunday, I went to the Roman God today (laughs) and I just happened to be a soldier. That's not how it works. They had idol worshiping feasts before they went out to do battle. You're right. It was a part of the job. It was a part of the job. I just don't think there's any way. Now you're saying like, look- Lots of other scriptures told them to not do idol worship. Yeah, yeah. So your point is, hey, why didn't he say the thing that they wouldn't understand? Well, let's remember, what did he tell them? He told them not to extort others. There's lots of other scriptures that tell people not to extort others, right? So why did he need to say that one? My point is that we don't have everything John the Baptist said to the soldiers. I can imagine that John the Baptist did say to them, you need to stop worshiping your idols. You need to to put those things away. We don't get everything in Luke. And that's actually my point. Because we don't get everything, we can't start making arguments from silence to change this. Let's say this is true. I, Patrick Miller, I look at pornography every day. I embezzle money from the church. And I have a regular habit of lying to churchgoers. Let's say all three of those things are true, okay? Now, let's say you come along 
and you say, Patrick, you must stop embezzling money from the church. You're going to say that I don't also mean that you should stop doing the other sinful things you're doing. One of those things, the pornography every day, I'm doing every single day. It's a more common thing. So you could ask the question, why didn't you go on that? And that would be the idolatry. I would argue they probably committed idolatry more than they were extorting from people. That's probably a more consistent part of their life, right? My point is, you would probably say, well, why didn't you start with the porn thing, right? Because that was an everyday deal. And the rest of, I don't know why. That's just what you chose. And I don't know why Luke only chose this one thing from, oh, wait, I think I do know why. Because one of Luke's things themes is about money and how we use money and power. It runs throughout the entire gospel. So is it a shocker that what he says to the tax collectors and what he says <laughs> to the soldiers circles around one of his major themes, which is the use of money? Maybe, maybe not. So this is not an agreement, but the broader question is around soldiering. What do these soldiers do? We know that idolatry was a part of soldiering. And somehow we know that there were lots of Christian soldiers who found their way around the idolatry problem. We don't know how they did it, I don't know how Cornelius did it. I don't know how the centurion who said this is the son of God did it. I don't know how these soldiers did it. We have no idea how they did it. But I would propose to you that because that was a very frequent part of their life, if they were able to get around that, is it possible, perhaps, maybe, that they also figured out ways to get around the use of violence? I don't know. There are historians who have said that most Roman soldiers lived in peace. They probably did not see violence. It might sound outlandish to us today, and I can understand that, but we don't know how they did it. We don't know how they got out of idolatry. To be frank, again, getting out of the idolatry is a much more impressive feat in the long term than getting out of violence. So just like Zacchaeus, who you brought up, who continued being a tax collector but stopped doing the bad parts of his job, I would contend that Roman soldiers kept being Roman soldiers without doing the bad parts of their job, which Jesus condemned in the Sermon on the Mount. So. Roman soldiers, commanded by Nero, stopped using violent force once they became believers. Okay. Yeah. I, 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 okay. I, I, I mean, I that's your answer. I think it's believable. I think that those same Roman soldiers, had they been sent to the front, might have rejected it. Some of them. Again, remember, they're, they're right. not all perfect Christians. Christians do all kinds of inconsistent things. Oh, absolutely. So, so we know that. But that, that is an answer. And I think it is a credible answer. Here's my bottom line. I know I'm going to convince about 0.004% of people who listen to this podcast. I realize that. You can't even convince your wife. I can't even convince my wife, right? (laughs) So who am I going to convince? What am I trying to do? I'm trying to get people to take seriously Jesus's teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, where he lays out in his most key critical teaching in the New Testament what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like. And he says not to resist evil with evil. He says not to return violence for violence. And he repeats this theme in other places in the Gospels, and he lives it out in his actual life and his battle with evil. So you might not go with me all the way, but my hope is that the American church, where we can have, like the story I told the other day, pastors who joke about shooting people if they walk into their house in the middle of the night, or serious Christians saying, I like Will Smith slapping people across the face. That's the state of our discipleship right now. And I don't think you're any happier with that than I am. And so if I can move people closer to a position of seriously considering whether violence is required, if I can get a general to be in your position, but here's the deal. It's very hard to get someone to do what their paycheck requires them not to I do. I love that line. <laughs> okay. But that would be my challenge. Even for you as a police officer, you might not agree with me, but if you walk away from this saying, I want to use less force than before, I want to be creative. I think that could be a good thing. You might still use violent, fatal force. You might disagree with me, but you might walk away and say, you know, the commandments of Jesus are pressing me to figure out how to be a peacemaker in a nonviolent way, in a creative way. And I think you'd agree with me. Say, that'd be great. If that happens, then I've served my small, idiotic role in God's economy. Yeah, I love the vision that you played out of Christians being less violent. I'm all for it.
We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. You know that Keith and I both care deeply about the intersection of the gospel, the good news of God's kingdom and culture and politics. What you might not realize is that we have a far deeper passion for God's word. Before we started Truth Over Tribe, we had a different podcast that we are still running called 10-Minute Bible Talks. And if you're trying to find a way to get consistent time with God throughout the week in his word, I want to encourage you to go check out that podcast, 10-Minute Bible Talks. We do little 10-minute podcast devotionals chapter by chapter through the Bible. And just like this podcast, I think you'll find it interesting and thought-provoking and challenging in all the right ways. But above all else, you'll find that you are pointed to Jesus, to love him more in your heart, to follow him with your hands in your life, and to see how the gospel of the kingdom truly transforms everything. So pause the episode and get onto your favorite podcast app and search for 10-Minute Bible Talks and start that journey today. Keith, you've gotten your chance to question me, and I am thrilled for an opportunity to actually be the one asking questions of the individual who holds the just war position, because I rarely get to do this. And my goal sincerely is not actually to roast you. I want to ask clarifying questions. I want to seek to understand this position. I don't believe you. (laughs) I believe your goal is to embarrass me which shouldn't be hard. <laughs> I believe, I believe in, in, in a proportional war, right? <laughs> Proportionate use of force. So, uh, uh, no, I, I'm a fan of Christian nonviolence, so I will do unto you as I wish you had just done unto me. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Let's go. Okay, so here's where I want to start because I was a little bit surprised to find that you believed that violence and self-defense is prohibited by the Bible. I don't know why. Jesus seems fairly clear. Romans 12 seems fairly clear. There are other passages in Scripture that seem like we shouldn't take up violent means to defend ourselves. When we start talking about taking up violent means on behalf of others, then I think that is a different conversation. Okay, so let's focus on the self-defense thing because I want to make sure I understand your position. So someone comes up to you with a gun, and they're pointing it at you, and they're saying, Keith, I want to kill you. And you have a gun, and you can shoot back and kill him. You're saying you should not shoot back and kill him. Well, this is no obvious. one else is threatened. Just you. You guys are in the middle of the woods. There's no one else around. There's no possibility <laughs> of anyone else being harmed. Uh, this sounds like something you'd find in an SAT question. Uh, so <laughs> I think Christians can have different interpretations of what Jesus means when he says to turn the other cheek. I don't know if that's limitless. I don't know if that is in all circumstances. Okay, so you're being generous to other people, but I'm asking you, what do you think? Because it's hard for me to move the conversation forward if I don't have a clear articulation. You ask me hard questions. I try to give you honest answers, even when I found them difficult to say. Personally, I would not feel comfortable using force or violence in that situation. No, I'm, I'm not asking. Okay, so that's great. For you personally, it's great. I'm asking, you ask for me personally. In other words, either say it is unethical for a Christian to defend themselves with violence, or it is ethical. I wouldn't do it, but it is ethical for someone else to do it. Well, that's a little bit of nuance here, brother. One is that I would not do it because I don't think you should do that. The way I read the scripture is that we should suffer harm instead of retaliating. However, I understand there are different interpretations of those passages. And so I'm open to those. But what do I think is right? I think it's right to suffer harm and not retaliate. 
Okay, we're on the same page here. So let's go. Let's. I think we're on the same page here. <laughs> here's, here's what's really happening. You, you want to be able to sit in a room with someone who doesn't hold your view and just smile and nod and be okay with it and not have to push back. And you want to be able to sit in my room and be okay and say, well, I didn't actually go there. But I'm very comfortable in the gray on all this stuff. I'm really comfortable to say it's messy. And I'm probably never going to be in the situation you just described. <laughs> so let's go to the passage at hand. So Matthew 5, 38 is what we've been talking about. And I know this is going to feel a little silly. The right way, if I wanted to have an unjust war, is I would go to your weakest position and start there and just start trying to attack it. I really want to get, though, into the passage. So I'm going to read it, because I don't think we've read it in this episode. This is what Jesus said. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And he keeps us going on to give other examples of how to not resist people. And then verse 43 says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So here's my question. Let's go back to the initial passage where Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. He says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, here's my question for you, Keith. When Jesus or Paul quote the Old Testament, what are you supposed to do? When Jesus and Paul quote the Old Testament, you should go back in the Old Testament, find the passage that they're quoting, and look at the context. And what you're going to find in this situation is that this is called the Lex Talonis. Is that right, Ooh, private school? Patrick? Using your Latin. My, I'm so glad. Is that right? Did I yeah. pronounce that correctly? I don't, I don't know. I don't actually know Latin. I don't think you pronounced it correctly. But and my understanding going. is that this passage of Scripture in the Old Testament was designed to limit the amount of punishment that could be afforded. In other words, it was not a way to maximize punishment but to limit it by saying, hey, if someone does this to you, here is what is a fair, right, and just response or punishment to that. Yeah, I think you're totally right. You and I would both agree a revolutionary moment in human history where we had this idea that force should be proportional. Because in other ancient cultures, if you were wealthy or powerful, you could use disproportionate force against those who were lower than you on the you know social hierarchy. And so we'd agree on that. But let's go to the passage because I think you nailed it, right? You should go to the passage and read the actual passage and see what it says. So let's flip to Leviticus 24, 17 through 20. Keith, why don't you give it a read? Anyone who takes the life of a human being is to put to death. Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution, life for life. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Whoever kills an animal must make restitution, but whoever kills a human being is to be put to death. You are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native born. I am the Lord your God. Okay, great. So we have this interesting passage, right? And Jesus pulls out the eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But in context, there's a lot more that happens there. It's like it's injury for injury, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, right? I like fracture for fracture. Yeah, fracture for fracture. It's kind of funny. Like, you broke my arm. Get over here. I'm going to fracture your arm. (laughs) Okay, so let me just ask a few questions. Is this passage primarily about self-defense? No. All right. What do you think it's about? I think it's about justice in the context of the theocracy of Israel. In other words, here's how God's people in Israel, this nation, should try to handle punishment against those people who commit wrongs against their neighbor. Yeah, so it's saying in our community, how do we handle violence? So when someone plucks out an eye or someone breaks an arm or someone takes your life, how do you respond? And the principle that's laid out in the Old Testament, what you just said, lex talonis, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, proportional justice. 
And this is how we do it as a community, right? So there's no personal vengeance here. So if you take out my eyeball, I don't get to just take a knife and take out your eyeball. I have to go to the proper authorities, because this is how we're going to do things as a collective, as a community. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it makes sense. So it includes self-defense. Self-defense would be in here in some sense, right? But it's not really talking about self-defense directly. There's different passages we could go to in the Old Testament that would say, what do you do when the home intruder comes in? I think this is designed to be, like you said, how civil authorities meet out punishment in the context of a community not one person enacting vengeance or vigilante justice against someone who hurt them. Yeah, okay, so I think we're in perfect agreement on this. So the question then is, when we go back to Matthew 5. Makes and, me nervous that yeah. we're in perfect agreement because <laughs> it tells me I'm getting set up. Yeah, I know, I know. When we go back to Matthew 5, Jesus quotes a section. Remember, it's like a hyperlink. It takes you back to the whole passage. And so he's quoting a section saying, how do we deal with violence in our community? How do we deal with it specifically in the theocracy of Israel? And we know because of the passage that this isn't just eye-for-eye violence. This is life-for-life violence all the way to fracture-to-fracture violence. So Jesus is saying, all violence is included in this conversation. If we do the hyperlink thing, you'd have to agree. Would you agree with me on that? Well, I agree. I think I see where you're going, and now I understand why you're wrong, but go ahead. (laughs) Now, here's the other thing I want to ask. Are there any other Old Testament passages that talk about self-defense? Oh, I'm sure there are, but I don't have them memorized. (laughs) Yeah, so there's plenty of Old Testament passages. In fact, we brought one up in our Bible thing. Now, here's my main question. If Jesus' focus here was exclusive or limited to self-defense— Don't you think he would have gone to one of the self-defense passages and said, hey, you have heard it said when an intruder comes into your house in the middle of the night and the sun's not up, you can attack him back. But I tell you, do not even resist him. That would be his way of telling you, hey, in a case of self-defense, don't resist this guy. Maybe. I mean, I think you could get in lots of situations where you say, oh, Jesus could have done this. He could refer to that passage. So So, I don't exactly know what your point is, but maybe he could have done that, but I'm just bringing this up to ask a question to say, why did Jesus pick the, because again, we have Latin phrases around this, but this is such an important passage. Why did Jesus pick the singular passage in the Old Testament, which deals with how communities deal with violence? Why did he pick that one? All kinds of violence from murder down to fracture for fracture. Why did he pick that passage? What do you think he wanted to talk about? I think in the context that people were living in, there was this kind of tick for tat, you know, that you do this and I do this to you. You do this, I do this. And so the Lex Talonis, the passage we just read, it limited the kinds of justice that a person could inflict on those who hurt them. And so I think what Jesus is doing is saying we shouldn't be in this tit-for-tat relationship, that we just respond in kind to those who hurt us. We're really rolling in great agreement here. If Jesus takes a passage that was written for the community of Israel about how they deal with violence, and they had this tit-for-tat thing, life for life, tooth for tooth, eye for eye, he comes along and he's not rejecting the law, right? He says, you've heard it said, But he lays that out as the floor, the bare minimum requirement. This is what he does with adultery, right? Because this is in a context where he does the exact same thing. He says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, don't lust. He says, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I tell you, don't even say a hateful or angry word at a friend. So he's taking these basic principles and he's expanding them. Now, why is he doing that? You love to say that Jesus is doing this to give people their personal individual ethics, which I have resisted from top to bottom. And this passage does as well because it's all in the second person plural. It's all y'all passages, okay? So this passage is saying, y'all don't resist the evil person. I've never heard you say y'all. Well, it's the only way I can do it. Now, here's my point. He picked a passage about how communities deal with violence because he's telling his followers in his kingdom, how do people in our community deal with violence? And he knew that you would hyperlink and know that he wasn't just talking about eyes for eyes. He's talking about life for life. And so he's asking a very specific question. When my life is threatened 
or when really the life of anyone else, because this is a community passage. This oh, is not. Wow, we just made a big jump there. Nope, because if he wanted to talk to individual self defense, he could have gone to one of the self defense passages. But we've already agreed that the original, this is your words, yeah. was about the theocracy of Israel, it was about what was happening inside of the community. And we agreed that when anytime Jesus or Paul quote a context, they're telling you to go back to that context and let it inform the present. Mm-hmm. And because we know that Jesus is presenting himself as the new Moses, and these are the rules for the community. It sounds to me like what he's giving is a community rule about how the community deals with violence. He could have, by the way, very easily individualized this. And yet, both in his vocabulary and in the passage he chose, he picks community. So if I understand it right, you're going to take this passage and you're going to say it's always wrong for a Jesus follower to use force against someone who is harming other people. That's what you think this passage leads you to believe. I think this passage leads us to believe that Jesus saw the life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, which we just read in Leviticus. And he said, in my community, we're going to do better than that. In my community, we won't even resist the evil person. We will lose our life. This goes to the Revelation 12 and all kinds of other passages. We will lose our life for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of others. In other words, he says specifically, I mean, this is quoting him, do not resist the one who is evil. That is a specific command. And then he goes into violent examples talking about people slapping each other. And again, we go to Luke and other places to find all different kinds of examples of this. So my point is, if we read Jesus in the context of Leviticus and we read the words that Jesus said, how do you get to the point that you say it's okay to resist an evil person by killing them? Because I believe that this is directed to an individual Jesus follower who y'all, is... Y'all, is <laughs> No, it doesn't say y'all in, in Matthew. It, it is y'all in Matthew. It says... Y'all have heard it was said. I looked it up this morning. I did my Greek work. I know that's hard for you to believe. I was ready for this, right? Y'all have heard it said. And then in 39, he says, and I say to y'all, do not resist the one who is evil. This is a community ethic. And it's taken from a community ethic in Leviticus. Stop individualizing it. I think the command is written about receiving personal insults. So we've already talked about this before. There's no need to go into too much detail. But when he says that you are struck on the right cheek, That was a right-handed person backhanding a person so they could strike that person on the right cheek. And this was a trading of insults. Now, I do think that a Christian should not resist evil, should accept that they will endure harm and not retaliate, love their enemy, pray for those who persecute them, suffer injustice. But I don't think that means that government can't step in and use force on behalf of those who are vulnerable or to establish justice. I don't see that the Sermon on the Mount is written to governments because to say it is, is to ignore other passages in which the government is commanded to use force. Now, that's going to lead us into all these different rabbit trails, right? And if people have been listening, they can predict what you're going to say next. And that is, yes, governments do that, but Christians shouldn't be involved in those governments or at least not in a way that puts them where they're having to use force in that way. Yeah, that's exactly right. But what I'm trying to do is remember, I view violence on a scale of four things, self-defense, neighbor defense, policing, and military. So there's four different levels. I'm bracketing out for a second, police and military. I'm not trying to make a point about what the state can and can't do. So I grant everything you just said. Great. Yes, absolutely. So you're just telling me that it is wrong to use force on behalf of another person, neighbor defense. I'm asking both for self-defense, which I think we're in agreement on, although you think there's a lot of gray there and I'm maybe less gray there. But yes, let's move into neighbor defense. So I guess that this is the question I want to ask. At what point does Jesus' command to not resist an evil person, at what point in violence does that command no longer apply? 
When's the break point? Like, when do I get to say, you know what? Now we've crossed the line where I no longer have to listen to Jesus. When it's on behalf of someone else in order to enact justice, to protect someone else, to love my neighbor. Okay, so a home intruder comes in. Mm -hmm. And the home intruder says to your wife. This is where we're ready? going. You're going to bring this up? No, ready. After I resist it. Uh, has a gun, has a gun, and says, hey, I'm going to shoot your wife. Now you have the chance to shoot him back. What do you do? Well, I think when it comes to your family, that's a hard call. We live in a messy, broken, fallen world. I wish things like that didn't happen. I could be sympathetic to someone who said, I need to protect my spouse in this situation and use force to do that. I also, though, would probably say, hey, as far as me and my family, we're in this thing together. And so I'm not sure whether your own personal family falls into the neighbor, the someone else, or if it falls into kind of you and your personal convictions. It seems like a gray area to me. So let me make it less gray. You have a gun, but the intruder doesn't. The intruder's just walking in with his fist. He's broken into your house. Now, there's no doubt this is a big guy, maybe, or maybe it doesn't matter. He, If he wanted to, he could probably strangle your wife, murder your wife. It wouldn't take much to overpower me. <laughs> I'm not the manliest of men. So you've got a gun. He doesn't. He's just in there barehanded, ready to go. Do you shoot him? What should I do or what would I do? What should you do? I'm just asking like at what because point. I know what I would do is I, yes, I would shoot the person. Yes. But whether I should do that or not is a harder question. Well, so I why, why is this a challenging question? Because in some sense, I think that when it's your family, my wife and I are of the same conviction. Is that more like me protecting another person, neighbor defense, or is it more like me in self-defense? And that's what I can't quite okay, tease that's out fair. right now. I understand that in neighbor defense, I would do it to bring about justice and peace. I think you should use the least amount of force necessary to accomplish that. But when it comes to your wife and your kids, your family, it seems like they're okay, so, so let's, close Okay, so let's change it, right? Because I'm just going to name what I'm getting at here is in any of these real life moments, you have to make judgment calls. It's just a fact, right? Like even if, the guy, even if the guy has a gun, I have to decide, is this person really going to shoot my wife or are they not? If the guy doesn't have a gun, but I've got a gun, I have to decide, is this person really going to try to beat my wife to death or is he not going to do it? He's saying he will, who knows, but I don't know, right? So we have to make judgment calls in the moment. So let's do the neighbor defense. You see a strange man crawling through a window into your neighbor's house and you've got a gun and you know that that neighbor's asleep and there's nothing they can do. In your world, you go in with a gun and shoot the guy. Well, no, that wouldn't be my first response. It might end it up with me shooting the guy. Yeah. But that wouldn't be what I would try to do. I might try to chase him through the window that he's climbing okay, through. Okay, so you chase him into to, the window and he says, I'm going to kill all these people. What do you do? Well, again, I wouldn't immediately shoot them. I would see what's he do. I would point the gun at him and tell him to stop. I, You know, but if he's going over there with a knife and starting to put it against yep. the person's throat, then yes, at some point, at the last moment, as the last resort, which by the way is a just war tenant, and the last resort, I would probably do it, yes. Yeah, okay, so here's all I'm trying to highlight. Obviously, we have a difference of opinion here. Two things, thing number one is, it does not matter. In any given situation of violence, there are subjective judgment calls. You have to decide at some point, right? For you, yes. it's like you have to have the knife against the neck. For someone else who I've talked to in the past, it might be you just walked into my house. That's all it takes. You're present. Yes. So you have to evaluate at which point does Jesus' command to not resist evil, when does it break down? No, I don't think that's yes, right. Yes, you do. I don't. Okay. I'm not saying that what you're saying is wrong. I agree with a lot of it, but I don't think it's an issue of saying 
when does Jesus command to not resist violence? It's a first no order. No longer go into effect. Yes, it I is. think what it is saying is in what context? Yes, it's a first order. In? It's a first order, second order. And does question. this apply? Yes. Did, was Jesus thinking of your neighbor with a knife to their neck when he said this, or you know something similar in his context? Yeah. Was that what his point was here, or was his point to say, "Hey, look, we as Christians don't retaliate against those who hurt us." We suffer injustice instead of trying to defend ourselves because we always want to be people who love our enemy, not those who are trying to get justice against them. Absolutely. And so this is a first order, second order thing. And what you're saying is that in context, the command to not resist your enemies, it becomes a second order command, which is less important in the moment than a first order command, which is to do justice, right? To preserve life. You'd say, look, that's a higher level command. And so I'm going to go with that over this. Jesus's words don't stop being meaningful to the person no, in that situation. They just say they no longer apply. Well, it's not that they no longer apply. It's that they would be a secondary thing. This is my point. It's like, you are saying that at some point I have to make the subjective call of when I transition from, I'm not going to use violent means to resist this person to now this person has done something, which now tells me I have to use violent means because this is the only way that I'm going to judge. In other words, when does Jesus' command go from first order suddenly to second order? And I'm not critiquing you for right. it. This is, this is, I'm not saying it's that. I understand you're trying to name it because you are resisting evil by using violence, but you're saying in this instance, it's okay. Here's what I don't think we're on the same page on is that I'm saying that the context has changed. I'm not saying that it's just a matter of me saying, okay, I am now permitted by Jesus to resist violence. I'm saying that the time that he gave this command no longer applies to the situation that you have given. Now there's another command by God that he gave to governments in order to establish a just society. And that we need to be thinking through that framework not through the framework that you've given of what I would consider more individual ethics within the kingdom. Well, I mean, bringing in the government is difficult because you as a guy with a gun are not a government agent who is acting on behalf of the government to execute justice. Now, it's a legal thing to do, I was right? going to say, it is a legal thing but to I'm, do. I'm, so I'm not saying it's illegal. My broader point here is that Jesus goes to the Old Testament, finds the Old Testament's quintessential passage about how you deal with violence, which is proportionality. That's the key in the Old Testament. And he takes it to the New Testament. He says, here's how you deal with violence and all kinds of violence. I mean, he gives all different kinds of examples. And he says, here's how we deal with it. We don't resist. My only point here is, and I'm agreeing with you, that context changes what's first order and what's second order. And I'm just trying to highlight, this is all I want you to admit. Not that you're wrong. I just want to highlight the fact that it's subjective. That at some point, you flip the switch from, I'm in a, this context that Jesus is talking about context where I'm just resisting a person without using violence to now I'm in a different context where it's appropriate to use violence, but you have to make the judgment call. No one else gets to make it for you. Yes. I do admit everything that you just said that you have to make a judgment call. I don't think it's super hard, but maybe you do. I think that the reason it's not super hard though, is because now you're doing it on behalf of someone else Yeah, and you're doing it as a last resort. You're using proportional violence. You're doing all that you can to bring about justice. But I think it's the way you love your neighbor. I mean, don't you think that you have to love your neighbor by protecting their rights, their life, their property? I disagree. I think that there are lots of forms of nonviolent resistance that I could do, which we actually agree on. Like you're saying, look, I, I'm going to try other things before I go here. So, so we're actually- Last resort. Again, this is where like we're in a lot of agreement. Now, again, my pushback here is I just go back to the example of the apostles and the early disciples. They had all kinds of opportunities to resist the violence that was done to them, and they continually reject the option. They're not using violence to bring the kingdom, right? We've already differentiated. They're not saying, hey, we're going to take swords and go fight for Jesus. 
but they do choose again and again not to resist the authorities or not to resist the mobs or to not resist the individuals who come at them with violence. They reject that as an option. Now, I could have done that, right? If I was there with Stephen, I could have said, you know what, I wouldn't defend myself, but I'm going to defend that guy. And we know there were Christians there. None of them did it. Not a single person stepped up and said, I'm going to do it. And I think there's a reason for that. Yeah, I mean, I think that bringing the Stephen example up is a really good one. And I wonder what Jesus would want them to do. Why didn't they respond? Is it because the numbers were overwhelming and there was no point? Mm-hmm. Uh, or or was question. it because they really were convicted by Jesus's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and they thought it's wrong for me to try to defend Stephen? Here's my last little thing while we're talking about self-defense and neighbor defense as a topic, then we'll shift over to the just war thing. Because I never get to make up the theoretical situations. I'm sorry, I'm having fun right now because no, I, I finally get to do it. I'm not having fun. Uh, <laughs> your neighbor... About to get killed by a guy. This is not a real life situation, but just theoretically run with me here. Sure. You know that the person lying in the bed who's about to get shot, killed, is beyond a shadow of a doubt, a Christian who will be resurrected. And you know that you're a Christian who's going to be resurrected. And you know that the guy who's pulling that trigger will not be resurrected. He's not a believer. He's not a believer. But if he had more life to live... He might come to really regret the decision he made, shooting that person laying in the bed. He might come to realize his folly when that family forgives him and says, we still love you and we can show generosity and grace towards you despite the fact that you took someone that we love dearly. And that would be the thing that would lead him to salvation, to have eternal life. Now you have a choice. You can stop him from killing that person laying in the bed and send him to hell. Or (laughs) you cannot pull the trigger. Let him kill the Christian who's laying in the bed and live out the rest of his life and come to know Jesus. What do you do? Well, boy, in that situation, I guess I'm pretty good friends with the person laying in the bed. That's your neighbor. And, so, and so perhaps I don't know how you get along with your neighbors. On, perhaps we're on the same page <laughs> yeah. as far as faith issues. And maybe in that situation, I would let the guy kill my neighbor in order for him to come to faith. But in most situations that you're in, what you don't know is what happens if you don't shoot this guy. Mm -hmm. Remember, I'm going to try to use the least amount of force possible. So if possible, I'm not going to try to kill him. Shoot him in the butt. Whatever. (laughs) A bullet in the butt. (laughs) But I don't know what happens if I don't intervene. Does he go on a killing spree and murder 10 more people? What does he do? So I only know what happens if I intervene and try to prevent him from doing this. But maybe he goes in, just to go along with your hypothetical, maybe he goes on a killing spree and kills 100 people who are all now going to go to hell. But if he hadn't killed them, then maybe all those people would have met Jesus and been forgiven of their sins. So I bring up this hypothetical example, not because I think it's realistic. I mean, again, I'm the guy guy who's constantly brought into these unrealistic hypothetical examples. However, I just want to highlight the subjectivism here, that there are a lot of things we don't know in these moments that we have to make a call, right? And if we knew all the information, we might make all different kinds of calls. But of course, yes. we, don't, we don't get to know that info. And so it's all left up to us in the moment, adrenaline pumping, to figure out what's the right thing to do here. So maybe you should know what the right thing to do is before you end up in that situation. But my point is every situation is different, right? Like you might have a neighbor you know well and one you don't know. Like every situation is going to be different. There's no way to fully prepare, unless you're in my camp, who's like making a radical stance of, I would not kill the person. It's really hard. You're going to have to make the judgment call. Well, remember, I don't want to kill the person either. I want to do everything I can to not do it. But if he's going to go on a shooting spree of killing all these little kids, then yes, I am willing to kill him if I must in order to prevent that from happening because I think justice is worth fighting for.
want to move for a second to Just War. We explored Just War in a previous episode where you laid out the various principles associated with it. Now, my first question for you, and I know you know this, is that Just War theory doesn't actually come from Christian thought. It comes from pagan thinkers like Aristotle and Cicero. Cicero was a famous rhetorician whose main goal with Just War was ostensibly to be able to rhetorically defend what wars he liked and attack <laughs> what wars he disliked. So it was a useful theory for him, not so much a actual ethical theory that he lived on. Some people who weren't Christians were using just war kind of like what we would do is to try to prevent war as much as possible, prevent harm. But some used it to justify their militarism. Absolutely. It's kind of a both and thing. You don't need the Bible for just war theory, correct? Sure. You can have some form of just war theory without the Bible, just like you can have some form of inalienable human rights apart from the Bible. The well, Bible supports it, and you need biblical thinking to get there, but the, ooh, the writers of our Constitution and Declaration of Independence didn't need careful biblical thought in order to come to their conclusions that every human being has rights. You did a little sleight of hand there. You use the example of human dignity, and then you admitted the fact that the framers of the Constitution, the Enlightenment thinkers, they took this notion from the Bible. In other words, the Bible came to it first, and then they came to it second, and they stripped it of the Bible in many ways, right? They kind of explained it in a humanitarian way, but that's different than what we're talking about. Just war existed before any Christians began to use it as a theory to guide their practice, correct? I'm positive that we could find people who aren't Christians who have advocated for human dignity and human rights. Apart from the Bible, not using any Christian thinking at all. I agree that there are going to be people who advocate for it. I would have some serious questions about whether the entire concept of human dignity, individual inalienable rights, if that comes anywhere outside of the Christian tradition. Well, I agree, but I guess I would say also that I think in order to have a fully formed just war theory, in order for it to make sense and its fullness and richness, you need the Bible. Okay, so just out of curiosity, what do you need the Bible for? What didn't the pagans have that the Bible finally gave us? Well, I think part of it is that the government is a servant of God and that the government had God-given authority and was sanctioned by God to carry out certain actions in the world. That's fair. Here's what I find really interesting about just war. The Bible does actually talk about how wars should be fought. So the Old Testament has a lot of passages that talk about how Israel should do their wars. We've already discussed this, right? There's the rules for the Canaanite warfare, which is one set and seems very time-bracketed. Like, this is how we do one specific kind of war in one time in history. But then there's general rules for war that seem to apply to all of Israel's wars. But even what you just said admits that God sent believers to war and that God commanded them to kill people. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing with that. Now, my point is, if we want to go to the Bible as an ethical source for warfare, we probably shouldn't go to the Canaanite passages. Reason being, we aren't the Israelites. There is no nation which has been called by God to go to warfare explicitly in the manner that Joshua did. Correct. Okay, so if we go to those other passages that talk about how Israel should do war, there's a few things they say. They argue in Israel for no standing or professional army, it's entirely voluntary. They set serious limits on advanced armaments, especially for central leaders. They have limited training. They're told to trust in Yahweh and prayer and worship. There's limits on environmental destruction. And so Preston Sprinkle, an author who we've both read, this is what he says. If America, for instance, used the Bible to shape its warfare policy, that policy would look like this. Enlistment would be volunteer only, which it is, and the military would not be funded by taxation. 
America would not stockpile superior weapons, no tanks, drones, F-22s, and of course nuclear weapons, and it would make sure its victories were determined by God's miraculous intervention, not by military might. Rather than outnumbering the enemy, America would deliberately fight outmanned and undergunned. Perhaps soldiers would use muskets, or maybe just swords. There would be no training, no boot camp, no preparation other than fasting, praying, and singing worship songs. Now, I think in a lot of ways, Preston's pressing his argument about as far as he possibly can. But my question is, when we get to just war, the things that the Bible actually says about not having a standing war army, about warnings about having superior armaments, these things about having limited training, all of these things which are in the Old Testament, they don't even appear in just war theory. What we use the Old Testament to do is say, hey, God sent people to war, therefore we can go to war. But then we ignore the actual passages that talk about how you do warfare. So much to say there. I respect both you and Preston Sprinkle, but this doesn't quite make sense to me. In the Old Testament, you have a theocracy where the people are supposed to trust God. God is their king. We've both admitted that when you move into the New Testament, that the relationship between God and specific nations changes. And therefore, to go back into the Old Testament and see how you lived in a theocracy and then apply that directly to us seems a bit forced. Yeah, let's throw out the praying and worshiping for God's victory. Let's toss those out. Hey, those are theocratic. Well, no, we would toss but, it all out. In no, other no, words, no, we, we would toss out the limited things. armaments. Uh, Why would you toss those out? Because, again, Israel is a theocracy in which they are a nation that is supposed to trust God for their defense. That is different than what God has established post-Christ. Great. I'm in agreement with you. So let's go ahead and throw out the entire Old Testament theology of violence. Because all of that violence, which you use to defend a just war position, if you want to now— no, no, I, I by didn't the way, no, use no, no. it to defend no, a just I mean, war. Yeah. All I said was is that if God can command people to kill in the Old Testament— Because it's it must a not be, but, but hang on a second. It must not be ethically wrong. And so—because God doesn't sin. God doesn't do wrong. That's a different issue than how do we do it. This goes to the character and nature of God. God did not sin. I know we agree on that. And therefore, it is not always wrong to kill. You are paying fast and loose for a single reason here. You said it's a theocracy. In other words, things work differently in Israel. One of the ways it works differently is that God spoke directly to Israel about their foreign policy. Ergo, when God tells people to kill other people, when he tells them to do that, it is an act of his justice and judgment because he's the one who commanded it. There are things God can do and God can do through other people explicitly through his theocracy that individuals may not do who are not a part of a theocracy because God has not told the United States of America or the Taliban or whoever, you now are my agent and I have given you specific commands to go to war on my behalf because they aren't a theocracy. No, but you said in our last episode that God used the pagan nations to mm -hmm. enact his justice. I agree. So he didn't give them specific instructions, and yet they went to war, and God said he used their warring to bring about his justice. Yes. Now we live in the time of the New Testament where God has sanctioned governments, called them his servants. That was written at the time of Nero in Rome, so it wasn't as if these were Christian governments, and he has told them that they have certain powers. So... It seems completely different than the theocracy and where they're supposed to trust God. You are leaving out the other half, which is that God continually holds those same nations accountable for the violence they do in his hands. And God will hold nations today accountable for their violence. Great. So and the some question, of it may be good and some of it may be bad. So the question for us then, again, as Christians, has to come down to our ethics, right? Am I allowed to participate in what this nation is doing? Now, my broader point here is, People play super fast and loose with the Old Testament warfare passages because here's what they do, and you just have to admit it. They either say, see, God sent people to war, so war's okay, it's great. And then when you say, well, let's look at the other passages about war in the Old Testament, what they say, they go, whoa, 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 those ones don't count. I'm not gonna play fast and loose. I'm gonna be very honest. 
God sent people to war. God limited war in Israel. God did this because he is God and can call specific people in a specific time to do things. He called the people of Israel to do something which he does not call people in the New Testament to do. He called them to go to war explicitly. He does not call us to go to war explicitly. So well, my view is incredibly coherent with the New Testament's teaching. Well, I don't even remember. It seems so long ago of, of when I laid out my position, but I don't believe that I said that America or any nation today should fight as the Israelites fought. I've never tried to say that because God called them to go to war and kill, that therefore that's the same thing as God calling America to go to war. I've never said America is in place of Israel. What I did say is, is that there's a difference between killing and murder. And that what we find in the Old Testament and the New Testament is that killing in and of itself is not wrong, that it can be just. Now, what we have in the New Testament is a divine sanctioned government. And therefore, I think that the real question you have is, can Christians participate in divinely sanctioned governments or not? And I think what you're trying to do is say that Christians can participate at all these different levels, but not in the act of warring or using yeah, force or violence. And because they are established by God and because they are given God-given responsibilities and because we are citizens of two kingdoms, both the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven, I don't see why Christians can't and shouldn't participate in those. I think this is a really interesting topic. One of my major critiques of Just War, which I just don't think gets enough airtime, is simply that what you have advocates of Just War saying is this, the Bible has divinely sanctioned violence. And then it creates an entire system about what that just violence looks like without any recourse to how God talks about just violence in the Old Testament. Completely ignores it. So it throws out one half, keeps the other half. And I think everything you said is coherent, that God has established a state and that he works through the state to do these things. And you're right. My whole thing here is whether or not we should participate. Here's my next question. Has there ever been a just war? Has there ever been a war which met all seven of the categories of just war? Well, this is a question that I expected, and I'm pretty sure the answer is probably no. But I want to say a couple of things. One is that it's all subjective. One of the problems with just war theory is that you can talk yourself into any war being just or proportional or as last resort. And ultimately, all these nations are given that responsibility, divinely sanctioned by God, leaders put in place, and they will be held accountable to God for their choices. Do I think that there are any perfectly just wars? Well, no, we live in a Genesis 3 world, a fallen world where we don't even trust our own motives, or at least we shouldn't, and where we don't have all the information that we need to even make that decision. So, no, I can't imagine that any war in this world meets all seven just war criteria. Or even one, maybe. You know, I mean... That's going to go to my next question. There's a guy on Twitter. His name's Adam Shields. He tweeted at me. He said, there's lots of internal limiting principles in just war theory that just don't seem to actually limit things in most practice. Now, I think the point he was trying to make here is that a lot of these things are principles that when you get onto the field are really hard to live. So let's go to the example of non-combatants. So the idea in just war is that you should avoid killing non-combatants. Now, there's an acceptance that, yes, there are always going to be non-combatants killed in war. And so my question is, how do you personally think states should evaluate the destruction of non-combatants? It's like how many non-combatants can die before it counts? And before we do this, let's just remember, by all statistics, one third of the people who died in World War I were non-combatants. That increased in World War II. It increased in Vietnam. Two thirds of the people who died in Vietnam were non-combatants. Now, today we have things like drone strikes, which you brought up in other contexts. See, these things are awesome. Now, of course, the CIA loves to tell <laughs> us. They're awesome. The CIA loves to tell us that 
that these things kill no civilians. Now, you and I both know. Well, of course they do. Of course they do, right? And it's really hard to know how many civilians they kill, but you've got insane statistics coming out of places like Pakistan saying, you know, that they're killing nine civilians for every one person, which seems like it's wrong. And you've got us saying none. And so I've done a lot of looking into this. And one of the fairest things I've seen, and it does seem really fair, puts the number at about 10%. So if you want to kill, let's say, 10 terrorists, the numbers work out like this. You want to kill 10, or let's do 20 because that'll make this easier. You're going to end up killing one non-combatant and one child. For every 20 terrorists you get, you're going to kill one child and you're going to kill one non-combatant. So the child isn't the non-combatant. You're saying, I'm saying that one child who's a non-combatant and an adult non-combatant. Okay, that that's, sense. that's how the numbers work out because mm -hmm. children are all over the place. Sure. So I guess my question is, knowing that we have actually killed more non-combatants in the last century than any other time before, and knowing that even our most precise method is still killing non-combatants, like, how do you evaluate that? Like, how do you know when you've killed too many? So let's start with this. Just War Theory says that you should not target non-combatants, right? It doesn't say that non-combatants won't die. It just says you don't target them. So I think if we're targeting non-combatants, then we have violated one of these just war principles, and I think that's wrong. Can we get rational for a second and say if there's a combatant who's in a house full of non-combatants, if I'm targeting just the combatant and accidentally kill some non-combatants, that's okay? Well... It might be, now here's what you have to factor in, is who's in that house. Let's say that you had an opportunity to kill Hitler before he did all the damage that he did, but you were going to kill however many non-combatants you want to put in that house with him. Would that have been the right thing to do? You would have saved, what, six plus million Jews. You would have saved countless others, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of soldiers. Would that have been the right thing to do? Would that have been a way to love your neighbor and bring about a just and ordered peace by killing Hitler? Yeah, so to kill, Hit that would to be kill Hitler, aim. you have to, let's just put it into the numbers with a drone. You have to kill a baby mm -hmm. and you have to kill a non-combatant. Mm -hmm. That's the cost of killing Hitler. I'd do it. Yeah, see, I, I, I'd I, not even hesitate. I can't imagine why you would hesitate because so, you're- No, no, so I'm going to ask you, at what point does it become- yeah, that's too much. I won't kill Hitler. Does it take three babies, four babies? I, I don't five know. Five babies? How many babies Ten? did Hitler kill? 20? No, no, no. I'm, how, I'm, many how many babies did Hitler you, kill? No, that's, that's besides I the point. I don't want to be utilitarian and put you know babies that's on one side did. and babies on the other side. What I'm saying is that if you're a government and you have the opportunity to take out Osama bin Laden before 9-11, if you have the opportunity to do that. How many babies do, do you it. have to kill? Well, remember the goal is not to target babies I know, or anyone I'm, else. The goal is to target the individual. But see, this, and, is, this is highlighting, and you've already said it a ton of times, this is highlighting the subjectivism of this, right? Yeah. In other words, the subjectivism is multi-layered. One layer is how bad is this bad guy? Well, it seems like <laughs> right? what you're upset with is that God gave this power to human governments who are subjective, who are sinful, who have incomplete information, and you wish he hadn't given them that responsibility, and you don't like the consequences of God giving them that responsibility. Okay, but so, the reality so, is that he has, and I don't know what to tell you other than they have to make decisions in this broken, fallen world. Let me change the story. You're living in an apartment building with all your kids, right? And let's say they're young at this point. They're all, you know, under the age of 12. So you got babies there, you've got Hang on, I'm living in an apartment building with a bunch of kids under the age of 12. Yeah, this is hell. New York City, right? Yeah, <laughs> so that's what's happening. And uh, living next to you is a drug cartel leader who in the future is going to end up killing tens of thousands of people through his leadership. Just immense amounts of people for okay. his own wealth and his own reputation. And at this point, he's just kind of a middle 
run guy, but the government of Mexico knows that he's living in that little apartment right next to you. And so they send a missile, a drone, and they execute this guy. In the process, though, they kill all of your children. You're left behind. And you know, because I'm giving you future goggles right now, right? That this guy's going to kill tens of thousands of people. You're saying, I'm really glad the Mexican government just sent that drone to blow up that guy. Well, of course I'm not glad, but I understand the calculus that they went through to get there. And I understand why they did it. Now, let's remember that just war is more than this. So this means that they also tried everything else they could to yeah. prevent him from going forth and enacting his kind of murderous yep. spree. All so of they did all the but this was a last resort. Yep. And if the last resort was to kill him to bring about justice and that there were people like me and my kids who died, then yeah, it sucks to live in a broken, sinful, fallen world. I mean, but welcome to it. What other world are you going to live in? Yeah, no, I, Because I, here's the thing in your situation. They didn't send the drone strike. I didn't die. My kids didn't die in that apartment building. But this guy went on his rampage and killed all the people that you were just referring to. Yeah. Now, do you feel good about that? I mean, no, nobody's going to feel good about the consequences now, of living in this world. Let's just say for a second that you aren't alone, that there's lots of families living in the same neighborhood, all poor, can't move out of it, and they have similar things happen. And they begin to hate the government of Mexico because they love their neighbors and they see the way that we can't get out of where we're at, but we're dying one by one by one here with these other guys who we don't want necessarily anything to do with. But again, people live where they live. There's not a lot that you can do. And so would they be right then in turn if they got their hands on a drone to take that drone and shoot a missile at the guy who's been shooting missiles at them and killing their family? Why? Because they love their neighbors. And this is a form of neighbor defense. We have to protect our neighbors from the violence of the Mexican government. Look, your point is that violence breeds violence. And I get it, right? I mean, My point is incoherence. Like my point is subjectivity. Like at what point does this game end? Well, remember, God did not give every individual the right to figure this out governments have been put into place by God. And whether you like them or not, the presidents or the kings or whoever rules, or whatever it's called, the prime ministers are put there by God. Yeah. They have a system around them of people that give them information, uh -huh. oftentimes bad information, probably misinformation, but they take all that into account and then they make decisions. And you know what? I hate that system, but guess what? <laughs> It's the one God instituted. <laughs> it's, so it's the God, best of the worst system. God calls them his servant. Yeah. They're doing his will in yeah. some sense. It's hard for us to comprehend. I get it. It's messy. I wish it didn't happen that way, but yeah. I don't know what to tell you. And on one level, I actually agree with you. This is how the nations act. And God is going to use the nations to bring justice to the nations for both what they did to bring the justice and what happens afterwards. And so that person who grew up in the neighborhood where all their family members and people they saw got killed ends up becoming president of the country one day and decides they're going to send a missile over there to defend their people. Yeah, we can understand how this happens. Now, here's the deal. If we go through, because we just don't have time to do this, but you already admitted it, we could go through every single one of the seven categories of just war, and we could show that each one of them is highly subjective. Highly subjective. I completely agree. And it's probably one of the weakest things, I think, about the just war theory is that any government, any leader can rationalize how the war that he or she wants to commit is just, is of last resort, is proportional, isn't targeting non-combatants. And we know that that's just not true, at least not from where we sit. It doesn't look true. So I agree it's highly subjective. I don't know what to tell you, though. It is what it is. And I think it is the weakest point. You know, this is where I've been leading this whole time. Let's go back to self-defense. Let's go back to neighbor defense. From top to bottom, if you want to be a proponent of violence, you have to admit that every step of the way, there is a high level of subjectivity which is involved. There's okay. never clear-cut situations. 
some more than others, but yes, that's never as perfectly clear as you'd like. Yeah. You Even can what's never happening trust- in Ukraine right now, you could go to Russians who could use just war theory to justify what they're doing in Ukraine. Human beings can rationalize anything they want. Mm-hmm. Our motives aren't trustworthy oftentimes, and our knowledge is very limited. Yeah, and it seems to me that when we're in highly subjective situations, we tend to align ourselves to our self-interest. We tend to align ourselves to our national interest. True. We tend to align ourselves to our community interest, mm-hmm. and we tend to diminish the perspectives and views of those who stand on the other side of us. I hope all this goes back to being really angry at Adam and Eve for eating the fruit. <laughs> well, no, I'm just <laughs> naming all this. Uh, I bet it doesn't somehow. Three weeks ago, an interview came out on this podcast with Clayton Eckert, The Bachelor, right? You interviewed him. <laughs> Didn't you? It's a fun interview, and, I did. and you were and you were I have gentle. No idea where this is going? You were gentle with them. You were nice with them, but you pushed back at some points. You know, you were being a good pastor. I really enjoyed the interview. I think people should listen to it. But one of the things you pushed back on is that he had this motto. Do you remember his motto? Follow your heart. Yeah, follow your heart. And you pushed back on him because he said, "Look, following your heart has led you to tell multiple women at the same time that you love them." has led you to tell multiple women, I want to sleep with you. And it seems like following your heart is getting you into a lot of trouble. So are you sure that following your heart is a good motto? And he kind of didn't know how to answer that. No, he didn't <laughs> know question. how, but yeah. Yeah, and Am then I you asked him a question. Up? Then you asked him a question. You said, don't you think Jesus cares about what you do with your body? Yeah, I asked him, do you think Jesus cares who you sleep with? Yeah, and he, again, just kind of waffled. You know, he said, well, I've done it before and it's complicated and, you know, Genesis 3 world and all of this. He didn't actually say Genesis 3 world. I wish he had said that. That'd be funny. But, you know, he, he was kind of a realist. About it. He's like, look, you kind of got to try it before you buy it. Like, I want to make sure this is, you know, we've got good sexual compatibility before we get married. And so I know you and I disagree. And so, yeah, Jesus cares about that. But like, let's just be practical. Like, this is the world we live in. This is how we have to figure it out. That was his answer to the question. Would you agree? Uh, close enough. Yeah. You know, so to him, sexual ethics are highly subjective. Right. There's things that he would certainly say you shouldn't do. Like he would draw some lines in the sand, but they're highly subjective. He doesn't know there's much wrong with sleeping with multiple women and telling him that, that he loves them. And you and I would, of course, disagree with that. We think Jesus has some very clear standards about how you live your sex life. One of the things that terrifies me about our view of violence in the church today is that we have become, because we already live in a highly self-expressive culture, a highly individualistic culture where following your heart is the meme, it's the norm, it's what everybody does. We have become self-expressive self-defenders. When it comes into the moment of what I do to protect myself or my neighbor, the only thing that matters is my own subjective view. In other words, it's up to me to follow my heart to decide in the moment what I should do with this violence. And I think we could even press it further. We become self-expressive militarists. The only thing that matters is my nation's interest and whether my nation can justify whether this thing is right or wrong. And of course, there will be exceptions to the rule of people who are trying not to be selfish or trying not to live out a follow your heart narrative when it comes to violence. What I find so fascinating is that we're living in a cultural moment that says, follow your heart express yourself in your sexuality. And I would argue that Christians have done the exact same thing with war. We are living in a self-expressive, highly subjective reality where we're saying, just follow your own heart when it comes to war. And if it's this subjective, if I can literally take any war and make it into a just war in some way, I can figure out a way to rhetorically do it. If I can, in any situation, find a way to justify yeah, he didn't have a gun. I had a gun. Yeah, he was like a pipsqueak. I probably could have stepped on, and but like I'm defending myself. If there's a way for me to defend myself and to express myself in violence, then it's okay. It's justified. I think this would just make people ask profound and deep questions. Does Jesus care? Not just about what you do with your body. Does he care about what you do with your gun? Does he care about what you do with your violence? Does he care about that? And I think the answer is yes, profoundly. And he's as clear about it as he is with sexual ethics. That was beautiful. 
touching. <laughs> I feel like I need to take a moment and wipe a tear from my eye. Uh, here's the thing. I agree with about 97% of all that you just said. Yes, Jesus does care what you do with your gun. He cares what you do with your body. He cares about all of it. He's not for militarism. Christians have gotten caught up in seeing military battle through the eyes of the world and not taking into account how Jesus loves all these people, not taking into account how we need to love our enemy. I agree with all that. Christians, unfortunately, and I count myself among them, have been too quick to cheer on the United States in battle and forgotten that they are citizens of God's kingdom first and foremost. I agree with all of it. But where I start to disagree with what you said is that you gave a great case for people not being able to use their own self-expression, follow their own heart to use violence. Agreed. 100% agreed. But that's not how God established government. God established government so that it would have the proper authority to mete out punishment and force when necessary. So it sounds like what you're advocating for is something I would agree with, and that is that no one should run around and take the responsibility, kind of a vigilanteism, of take the responsibility to go out and exercise violence willy-nilly and accomplish their personal objectives. I agree, but God has sanctioned governments and given governments certain responsibilities. And as citizens of two kingdoms, the citizen of, say, in our case, the United States and of God's kingdom, that we can participate in the working of government ordered and structured by God, called a servant of God, sanctioned by God to carry out his will. Yes, it's a messy world. Yes, I agree that anybody can rationalize a just war, but that doesn't mean it was just, just because Vladimir Putin can figure out a way to call his war in Ukraine just doesn't mean that it is. All these governments will give an account to God and Christians will have to give an account to God for their own personal behavior. So I don't think you've made a case that governments can't effectively use force and that Christians can't participate in those governments. Here's my closing thought. You give a closing thought after this. I'm really glad that I hold my position on violence because when you get down to the brass tacks of how you think through violence, both on a national scale and on a personal scale, it becomes absolutely evident that it is highly, highly subjective. And I frankly wouldn't know. I'm just being honest. I would not know how to determine whether or not the war I was involved in or the personal self-defense or neighbor defense I was involved in was right or wrong. Because there are no clear standards. There are no clear principles. They are often rhetorical and based in my subjectivity. And yet, let me say this. I'm also thankful for just war. <laughs> so I'm going to contradict myself. Because I do think that some of the principles of just war have been used and enshrined in various statements that nations have agreed upon and has, as a result, had a limiting effect on war. So I'm talking out both sides of my mouth when I'm saying, look, I don't think these things really work. And yet, on the flip side, I do think wars would be worse without them. And so at the end of the day, what do I hope someone's going to walk away with from my argument? I highly doubt I've convinced anyone of my position that they should be involved in government, just not be involved in violence in the government, or that they should not defend themselves or their neighbors with violence, although there's lots of other forms of resistance that you can engage in. Here's my hope, is that they are taking a step back in their self-expressivism, that they are taking a step back and asking, is the reason why I believe in self-defense? Because really deep down, I'm just one of these individualist self-expressionists who thinks I should be able to do whatever I want to do to defend myself because I put myself first. Same thing for neighbor defense or my family. Like I think these are valuable questions to ask. And if someone takes one step in my direction, 
I do think, especially on the self-defense, they're taking a step in the direction of Jesus. And that'd be my last challenge is just go back and read Jesus's words about loving your enemies, about how you treat those who do evil to you. And just ask, can I live consistently with those words and do a violent act? Because if you don't answer that question before you're in the situation, you won't know what to do. You will simply go from your gut. And I don't know if that's a great place to be. Just war is trying to mediate between two extremes, militarism and pacifism. It's trying to mitigate against militarism by saying that we cannot go to war and use force and violence willy-nilly. We have to put some God-given limits on it. It's arguing against pacifism in that it is saying that sometimes in loving your neighbor, you must use force because advocates of just war are not just after peace. They're after justice. Remember that peace is a fruit of justice. Peace is not just the absence of conflict. God has established governments and given them certain rights and responsibilities that he has not given individuals. I think that Christians can serve inside those governments in every capacity, although it is very messy. I will be the first to admit that in the Genesis 3 world in which we are all fallen and in which our motives are suspect and our information is limited, that it's always easy to look back in hindsight and judge others. But I don't know what to do about that. That's the world that we live in. We can't just look at the consequences of what we did. We'd also have to look at the consequences that came because of our inaction. I can't live with myself knowing that Hitler killed millions of Jews and millions of other people, to be frank, and Christians can't be involved in that war. I think that's the way of loving your neighbor. I think that's way of bringing justice to this world. Sometimes mean having to enter into something you'd rather not do as a last resort. And that is to use force, even violent force, to prevent evil from flourishing. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. <laughs> okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.